0: I'm gonna do something a little different today. I've talked before in the previous two and a half episodes about a new book, Long Is the Way, that I wrote with my friend Alton Hardy. Now, this is an incredible story. It's a it's an incredible book um, and it will bless you in ways that you have never even imagined that you needed to be blessed. But I thought I would do something a little different today, and and I'm going to read you the first several pages of this story, starting with the author's note. It will give you a little bit of perspective, a little bit of insight into how and when and where and why this book needs to be told. I'm going to start with the author's note, and then we'll read the first several pages of the book, and this is intended... To give you a peek into what awaits you when you purchase, when you purchase one or many copies of this remarkable story. So here we go. Just a little taste. Okay. The author's note. In late 2022, I was eating lunch with my friend Greg Mixon, and it was Thai food, if I remember correctly, when he mentioned that he had a story he wanted me to tell. And I was mostly flattered, I think, but more than a little suspicious. What kind of story? I asked. A true story, he said. Alton Hardy's story. I sat back in the cushioned booth, furrowed my brow and grunted. You see, I had met Alton Hardy a decade earlier when he spoke at my church in Birmingham. I remembered hearing him and being moved by the earnestness with which he addressed the entirely white congregation. Alton is black. I remember being moved By the courage it must have taken for him to stand alone in that place and lay bare his soul. I remembered his message, but I didn't know his story. Meet with him, Greg continued. I think you'll agree that you're supposed to help. A week later, I found myself sitting in the passenger seat of Alton's car as we drove the 87 miles from Birmingham to Selma, Alabama. Tears overtook us both as he recounted the details of his childhood, as he patiently answered every silly question that popped into my head. His voice cracked as we shuffled across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and he described the atrocities that occurred there decades earlier. Now, he hadn't been a part of that fateful day, but like any good tour guide, he spoke eloquently and confidently about the details of March 7th, 1965. After four hours of talking and walking and driving and remembering and talking and crying and remembering and remembering and remembering, remembering, we were both exhausted. and, And we promised to get together the next week so he could tell me more. And we did, over and over again. Each Wednesday morning for the next 6 months, Alton and I pulled up chairs to a wobbly coffeehouse table and talked about his life. Every detail, every small story. I took a lot of notes and recorded mostly background noises on my iPhone, but The Lion's Share of This Book is a simple distillation of those Wednesday morning conversations. I am not a historian. I am not an expert on civil, social, racial, or human relations. I'm just a storyteller who has been given the gift of a powerful story to tell. And that is precisely what this is. That is precisely what Long Is The Way is. It's a gift. And it is a powerful story. In the interest of being genuine, Alton and I have chosen to use the authentic parlance and Southern African American vernacular common to the place and time where and when these stories took place. Some of the names and titles of this book have been changed to protect certain individuals and organizations, but the details are true. The circumstances are real, and our intentions as the writers are pure. This is an important and necessary story, and I am forever grateful that Greg asked and that Alton agreed that we should tell it together. Long is the way. Part one. Can anything good come out of Sardis? About six miles northwest of Montgomery, Alabama, near the town of Wetumpka, which happens to be pronounced exactly as it is written, the Tallapoosa and Coosa Rivers meet to form a waterway known as the Alabama River. It's a beautiful stretch of water teeming with largemouth, spotted, striped, and white bass, crappie, catfish, and snakes. Lots of snakes. But we don't talk much about those around here. Snakes, as my grandmother used to tell us, are the devil's helpers, and they out for no good. Some people say they good uns and they as uns, but I ain't never met no good devil. Have mercy. <laughs> Mama Fat ended most of her sentences with, have mercy, but especially when she got riled up about something. When she was talking about snakes, for example, she could have mercy so hard she'd nearly pass out. When I grew up four miles as the crow flies from where that river cuts through Selma, Alabama, and the Edmund Pettus Bridge connects one side of the tracks to the other. If you walk the dirt and gravel roads that link farms to plantations to town, it's more like 18 miles, but we hardly ever took the roads. It wasn't altogether safe to be on the main throughways where I come from, but especially the ones that hadn't been paved yet. Those roads still aren't paved. I was born exactly 16 months after Bloody Sunday, when the Pettus Bridge became famous and the Alabama River suddenly became more than a thread of water connecting Wetumpka to Mobile Bay. It was on that bridge and over that water where activist John Lewis and 600 marchers were stopped from crossing on their way to Montgomery. They were turned around, chased, beaten, and some were even arrested, for walking with their neighbors that day. The story goes that the group had planned to walk from Selma to Montgomery so that they might bring attention to the fact that black people were being denied the right to vote. It didn't take long, though, for state and city officials to let their disapproval be known loud and painfully clear. Seventy-two men and women were hospitalized that day, and hundreds more were injured at the large and far-reaching hands of Jim Crow. It was reported at the time that no place in the South has felt the grip of Jim Crow tighter than Dallas County, Alabama. And that is precisely where I was born. Smack-dab in the middle, but a whole world away from the civil rights movement. And my family was not a part of Bloody Sunday. In fact, I don't think they even knew it was happening. That day and that place would become famous and talked about worldwide for a generation. But we never even heard a whisper. I guess it can be hard to hear when you're being choked out by Jim Crow. Now, my people's people come from Sardis, a beautiful but nothing place as flat as it is empty. Though it's only a few throws of a stone from Selma, Sardis can hardly be found on the map. Aside from the crops that grow there, you know, cotton, corn, hay, sugarcane, and soybeans from time to time, this place has no value at all. Certainly no reason to be on a cartographer's to-do list, if you know what I'm saying. Now, my parents were cotton pickers, like their mothers and fathers before them, and so on and so on, and so it goes here in South Alabama. Our cotton days date back to when my people were wholly owned by the ancestors of the bosses we worked for a century later. Now, these days, folks refer to what my parents did for a living as sharecropping, But I am here to tell you that we didn't share none of those crops. And you can hardly call what they did every day living. When I was born in 1966... Verdell, and most people called her Belle, but Verdell and Willie James Hardy had already welcomed eight kids to their shotgun house, consisting of two bedrooms, a keeping room, which is exactly that, a room where, you know, we kept things, and a small makeshift kitchen with a wood-burning stove. This tiny shack was called Mr. Smith's Place, after the man who owned the land. And it was positioned, catty-cornered, to a county dump approximately three miles away through woods and fields from the land where my parents and siblings worked every summer. Now, I was birthed in that house in the hottest heat of the summer, Monday, August 8th. (laughs) I wish I could recall the looks on the faces of my parents and siblings as I came into that tiny place, screaming my skinny head off. I remember, or I don't remember, but I imagine... There was some joy in the room, but probably a lot more, here we go agains, and as they looked around and wondered, now where are we going to put this one? (laughs) Winters are mild in Sardis, but only as it relates to the weather. With no harvest to reap, it's a wonder we ever made it to spring when the planting began. Summers are when everything happens, but the heat leans toward the unbearable with air thick like an exhale from Satan himself. And that's when the picking happens, in the summer. Now, it's been said that Mama was back in the field on Tuesday morning after I was born on Monday. That's just the way it was. If you didn't work, you didn't eat. And Belle had 10 mouths to feed, including her own. Now, I started exploring Sardis when I was around five years old. I was too young to work the field, so I'd just walk, and walk, and walk. I'd wake up before the sun when everybody else was readying for the brutal monotony of their day, and I would simply step out into the bigness around me. It was cool in the mornings, even in the summer. But shirtless and more often than not without shoes, I'd shakily head out the back door and sneak through the trees that served as a natural barrier between our place and the empty fields behind it. The area around our house was a vast wilderness, a ghost town dotted with squared-off parcels of land that connected corn to melons to beans and, of course, cotton. Beyond the fields, though, that's where the adventure was. That's where animals lived. Squirrels and possums, foxes, chipmunks, wild dogs, hogs, mice, rabbits, and birds. So many birds. I talked to the birds when I was walking. That was the only time I would ever say much of anything, really. I was almost five years old before I started using words to express myself, and when I did, I had an awful stutter. My name is Alton. My name is Alton. It was pathetic. I was pathetic. I never even wanted to talk to myself. But I talked to those birds. I was extremely slow in developing. I didn't even start walking until I was four. My family all thought I was simple-minded or at least a little brain damaged. My father started hitting on my mama around the time she got pregnant with me. And, you know, maybe he knocked her down or punched her stomach during one of their few scrapes. Regardless, the assumption for those who knew me back then was that I was an unfortunate. There wasn't nothing nobody could do to help that unfortunate, hardy boy. And I'm not sure if my slow development was a blessing or a curse, to be honest. I, I know for a fact, though, that it allowed me to stay out of those fields. When I was very young. My siblings would carry me with them or strap me to their backs with an old sheet or a pillow sack. As I got bigger, though, they'd just leave me at home, alone. Now, there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. And I was, I was both, to be sure, but there was something about being outside, in the woods, that made me not so lonely, And as soon as I was able to put one foot in front of the other, I took my loneliness to nature and wandered and wondered by myself, talking, watching, searching. I can't fully articulate what I was looking for in those woods uh, along those paths and the river's edge, but I never felt closer to finding it than when I was walking. It was a daily search for meaning. I suppose, a longing for the promised land that I could not comprehend except for when when I was out there. I was in solitude by default. I had nothing but what God chose to show me in his creation, like the trees. I studied the trees around me, how they reach upward and outward at the same time, where they grow and when they flower. You know, leaves are larger on trees that grow nearer to a, a water source. Smaller leaves and, uh, with a sparse canopy, that means that we didn't get a good spring rain. I would study the alternate and opposite leaf patterns as closely as I would study the beetles and dragonflies and earthworms. Early in the mornings, there were flowers that would open up right before my eyes if I looked at them long enough. I was amazed at creation and all the thousands of beautiful, amazing, intricate, and mind-blowingly simple things I would see every day. But I never felt a part of it. I was just in it. Alone, yet surrounded by all of these wonderful things. Even still, I was hopeless, I had no hope. I had no ambition, no picture of the world away from the world that met me in those fields every day. Hopelessness is having no identity, no direction, no understanding of belonging. In Sardis, Alabama, my life was a picture of hopelessness. I didn't know what hope was, so I couldn't manufacture it. And I wasn't smart enough to counterfeit it. I was not even desperate for it. I was nothing. This has been a quick view into part one. Can anything good come out of Sardis? Alton Hardy and Billy Ivey's book, Long is the Way. I hope you folks will check it out. It's a powerful story. It's a great, great story that I think can change perspectives, can bring some hope, can open some eyes to the things around them. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you being a part of this with us. Small stories make a big difference. Like, follow, subscribe, do all the things you're supposed to do with podcasts so that we might be able to share more with more people in the coming days, weeks, months ahead. Again, you've been listening to Small Stories Podcast, a production of Small Stories Studio, Birmingham, Alabama. Thanks for listening. Have a blessed day. Go purchase. Long is the way at smallstorystudio.com.